We just sang that line a moment ago that he sends the waves that draw us nigh. It reminded me of the words of Charles Spurgeon, who said, I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. And Father, we stand in the promise of that truth this morning. That Lord, even difficult circumstances, even challenges, even the extraordinary moments of this life. Ultimately, Father, these are not things that push us away from you, but can draw us closer to you. Father, we praise you for the truth that even in our difficulty, even in our suffering, even in our pain, you can use these things to draw us near, that ultimately one day they will be used for our good and for your glory. So Father, I pray this morning for the person who's in the waves, for the person who's hurting, for the person who's suffering, for the person who's struggling. Father, that even through the worst of difficulties, we would be drawn closer to you. So Father, today will you use your word to shape our hearts and to shape our minds, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. With the precious truth of the good news of the gospel sound in our hearts once again. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We yield to you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you uh, find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Be looking at verses 26 through 30 this morning. If you're here today for the very first time as our guest, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And what we've been doing as a church family over the last several weeks is we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Uh, Lord willing, that's something we're going to be doing uh, for the rest of this year. And so again today, uh, rounding out chapter 1, looking at verses 26 through 30. Uh, and we're going to jump right into things this morning. D.A. Carson has said that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We do not naturally drift toward the Lord. Our, our natural inclination, even as followers of Jesus Christ, because of the indwelling presence of sin, is to continue drifting further and further away from the Lord. So uh, if we were to take Carson's words and put them into more modern specific terms, it might sound like this, that we drift toward a compromise of essential doctrines and we call it tolerance so that we can walk in pretended unity with false teachers. We drift toward disobedience of biblical sexual ethics and we call it freedom of being who God has made it to be. We drift toward the superstition of those who claim to die and go to heaven and return and write books and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of regularly forsaking the worship gathering, and we call it relaxation because we've just been really busy. We neglect prayer and time in God's word because it feels cold and it feels forced, and when we do this, we convince ourselves that we've somehow escaped legalism, and we slide toward the godlessness of teachers who preach messages that will help us feel comfortable about our sin, convincing ourselves that we have been liberated. Paul says in Philippians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, 
only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a picture of the gospel-worthy life, the life that is being driven by grace. And what the gospel-driven life is, is a life that walks in holy unity with the body of Christ as we stand firm in the face of opposition and as we suffer faithfully in the face of persecution. Let's go right to the text this morning in Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul says only. Everyone say that word only. Only. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that's from God. So we see first this morning that a gospel-worthy life stands firm in the face of opposition. Verse 27, Paul starts out with that word only. And the way that word could literally translate is just by Paul saying just one thing. So last week we saw how Paul was fully submitted to the will of God both in life and death. He makes that bold declarative statement, one of the most famous passages of scripture in all the Bible, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said that his depart, his desire was to depart and to be with Christ, he said, because that would be far better, but it's been necessary for him to remain in the flesh on the account of the church in Philippi so that he could benefit them and their joy and progress in their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's glad to do this because he knows that he's fully submitted to the will of the Lord in his life, and that it's ultimately going to lead to the Philippian church bringing glory to Christ. But in the midst of all this, he still issues this admonition, just one thing, just one thing, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So at this point in Philippians, this is where we find, you find it almost every single New Testament text, is the the tension that has always existed, the age-old tension of the relationship between grace and works. So uh, rewind a few weeks ago, Philippians 1.6, we saw the promise, we can be confident in our salvation. Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, that's good news. If the Lord has started the work of salvation in our lives, then he's ultimately going to bring it to completion. And that's, that is a rock-solid promise from the gospel that we can absolutely take to the bank. But so we, we, just, we make no mistake from the very beginning here. Salvation is totally and completely from start to finish a work of the Lord. It's the Lord who justifies, meaning that he declares us holy and innocent and blameless. It's the Lord who sanctifies. He continues to progressively make us holy. And it's ultimately the Lord who glorifies. He's going to see our salvation through until the day of Jesus Christ where we'll become fully like him. The way Paul says this most clearly in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, or this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And we go back earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter, where Paul tells us that we are not born spiritually good, we are born spiritually dead. And the very unique characteristic that dead people have is that they are dead. They're completely powerless to do anything in and of themselves. And so we were so dead in our sins, Paul says, we cannot even take credit for the faith that was required to call on Christ for salvation. All of this is an act and a work of grace. Salvation is completely and totally of the Lord. And we get to rest in the confidence that if we've been saved, the Lord's going to see us through to the end. But if we're not careful, what Satan will do is deceive us into believing that this now means we can live our lives however we want. If we're not careful, what the enemy will actually do is he will seek to use the message of the gospel 
to empower our disobedience to Christ. And here's how he goes about doing this work. This is the progression that takes place in our minds. So uh, we'll say to ourselves, I have been saved by Christ and I am eternally secure in him. Is that statement true or false? It's true. It's true. And then we'll say to ourselves, my salvation can never be lost and the Lord is going to finish the work that he started in me. Is that statement true or false? That's true. But then this is where we go. Built on those two premises, we'll say, therefore, since I'm secure in Christ, since my salvation cannot be lost, this means I'm free to disobey and God is now obligated to forgive. Is that statement true or false? It's false. If we're not careful, the enemy will use some of the most foundational truths of the gospel to actually dis, uh, to empower our disobedience against the Lord. Church, we need to understand this morning that the grace of God does not free us to sin, it frees us from sin. It's not freedom to live our lives however we now please because we know that we're going to die and get to be with Jesus. No, the power we receive in the gospel is freedom to walk free of sin. And we walk free of sin through what Carson called a grace-driven effort. So even again, this walking in the Lord that Paul's calling us to, to, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, this is something that's only possible through the grace-driven power of the Holy Spirit from within us. So to live a life worthy of the gospel, it means that we're walking in total obedience to uh, the whole counsel of God's word. This is what we see in the Great Commission, that as we make disciples, Jesus sends us out. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe how much of what he's commanded us? All of it. Teaching them to observe all or to obey all of what I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always. So, so what Paul does here, uh, in light of these truths, and this call to live our lives as uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ, is he paints three pictures here in these first two verses. One is of a citizen, the other is of a soldier, and the other is of an athlete. If you go back to verse 27... He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is a part of our Bibles, again, not, not an exact formal English equivalency, so it's under-translated a bit, where it, it could better translate to live our lives as worthy citizens. And this is similar language to what we find in Philippians chapter 3. So if you uh, turn your Bible over just a page or two to Philippians 3, uh, verses 20 through 21, we'll be in this passage here in just a few weeks, but let's read this together uh, because this gives us a full sense of what it is Paul's trying to express in chapter 1. He says in, in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, and those who were citizens of Philippi in this area, they had extraordinary pride in their Roman heritage. So again, if it was election season for them, the way it is now, you'd see the signs everywhere, make Philippi great again, keep Philippi great, Philippi's best days are still ahead. They had incredible national pride. Now, is it wrong to have pride in a nation? Absolutely not. No, we see this, they're proud Roman citizens, and even in our nation, we're aware of our nation's flaws and, and problems, uh, past and present, and yet there are things that can still be celebrated. You, you can sing right along there that you're proud to, to be an American. That, that's great. There's nothing wrong with having pride in your national heritage, but what we as followers of Christ have to constantly be keeping in perspective is that as Christians in this world, we're strangers in a foreign land. This world is not ultimately our home. And so this is especially, I think, pertinent to us in an election season where we need to be reminded, church, that our primary identity is not as citizens of the United States of America. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
This is our primary allegiance. This is where we give our foremost attention. So even during election season, as we we listen to policies and we evaluate candidates, we are not first and foremost asking the question, is this Republican or is this Democrat? We're not first and foremost asking the question, is this liberal or is this conservative? What we are asking first and foremost about the people and the policies we are supporting is, is this in step with the word of God and does that faithfully reflect the kingdom of Jesus Christ? That's where we start. We think first with our lenses, not as citizens of the United States, but as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So uh, in Philippi in particular, they're, they're carried this weight that if you might do something that, that soiled the reputation of Rome, what could happen is if you, you just did something where you really messed up, your name could be stricken from the Roman citizenry. So there was this incredible pride in the Roman heritage, and people were very, very careful to not do anything that would poorly or negatively reflect on the Roman Empire. And Paul is saying the same for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We seek to live our lives as worthy citizens who faithfully reflect the principles and the precepts of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is our primary concern, that we would walk worthy of the message of the gospel, to be worthy citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So the first picture there is of a citizen. The second picture he gives is of a soldier. Excuse me, Buford, Marines. There you go. He gives this picture here. So Paul says that he desires to see them standing firm. Standing firm. So uh, what you need to think of here is uh, historical warfare. Battle lines are drawn. Opposing armies line up against each other. They meet each other face to face. And so that's the picture that we see is that there uh, is a, a group of soldiers. They are holding a line and they've dug themselves in and they're pressing back against the attacks of the enemy. They're working as a, a single cohesive unit to withstand those attacks. So as we stand firm, uh, Paul shows us three desires for us. First, that we'd be united in spirit. Be united in spirit. His desire is that they would stand firm in one spirit. Now, this is important for us to note that uh, spirit in this particular verse, this is lowercase s. So if you look uh, just a few verses later into chapter 2, you see spirit uppercase s. And the uppercase is referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. So lowercase here, Paul is really referencing more of the human spirit. And uh, spirit in this particular sense can be defined as the power by which the human being feels and thinks and decides. So in our feeling, in our thinking, in our decisions, his, his call for us is to stand firm in one spirit. Second, he desires to be united also in mind. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So again, chapter 2, we'll see this in just a couple of weeks. Paul's going to exhort us to have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is a mind that's active, it's single-minded, it's, it's humble, it's pure, it's responsive, and it's peaceful where spirit emphasizes feelings and thoughts and emotions. The mind has more of a soul emphasis. It's suke in the Greek, and it relates to our attitude and our perspective. So the overall desire here is that we, as followers of Jesus, would be united in everything, and we would not live independently from one another, but interdependently upon one another. That we're locked together, we're united in all things. And third, his desire is that we would be united in faith striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So where Paul has now given the pictures of citizens and of soldiers, he now gives us the picture of athletes. I love this. The the literal translation of striving side by side is to wrestle in company with. Now, I'm going to ask a question here. And the first service was a little bit hesitant to answer this, so I'm just going to preface it by saying this is a safe space, right? Like you can be honest about these things, nothing to be ashamed of. So uh, if you are a fan of professional wrestling, either past or present, raise, raise your hand. Just go ahead and throw it up. Men, women alike, praise the Lord for this. And so uh, my, I've got three boys, and, and they love, uh, we'll, we'll oftentimes we'll throw up videos of like WrestleMania and Royal Rumbles and stuff like this, and then they, they practice the moves on each other, maybe when mom's not around. And, and so we 
we do this together. And, and so one, some of their favorite videos are of the tag team matches. Because you, you've seen, if you've watched pro wrestling ever before, it's uh, the, the, the 10 of us who have in the room and, and who are excited about that, um, is uh, you see that the tag team, they're working together, and it looks like the match is over and the guy's straining out, but then he smacks his buddy's hand, and what's he do? He flips off the top ropes and drops an elbow. And what Paul's saying is that's what the church is supposed to be like. Just waiting on the top ropes for one another. We, we, have, we are striving side by side. We are wrestling in company with each other to advance the message of the gospel and to withstand the attacks of the enemy. G- give a little bit of a clear example here. So uh, in rugby, any, any, anybody has ever watched rugby in, in the room? We're Americans. Yeah, we have our football, but rugby's cool too. And, and so you watch rugby. Now, uh, when two teams engage to uh, regain possession of the ball, does anybody know in rugby what this is called? It's called a scrum. Very good. It's good. This is called a scrum. And so again, if you've ever watched rugby before, if you're watching this on TV, it doesn't look like a whole lot's happening. Because what happens is uh, each team, they, they come together arm in arm, uh, arms above each other's shoulders, they lock arms together, they form lines, and uh, then they go shoulder to shoulder, heads down against the other team. And it, and it looks like uh, little kids' soccer, except everybody's just stuck in the middle of the field. Like they're not moving together, just kind of stuck in one place. But if you really dig in video-wise, it's getting nasty in there. I mean, they, they are digging, and, and they're, they're working as hard as they can as a collective cohesive unit, and simultaneously, they're trying to do two things. They're trying to regain possession of the ball so that they can advance, and they're trying to limit the advance of their opponents. And this is what we're doing as followers of Christ. As we strive together side by side for the work of the gospel, we are working together to advance the message of the gospel, but also to halt the advance of the enemy. And we do this as one single cohesive unified family. You know, there are a number of threats that, that the church faces to its unity. Some of these threats are uh, obvious and, and external, and these are probably the ones we think about the most. It could be anything from militant atheism to secular humanism to government or religious persecution. But I think if we're being honest and, and, just, and just taking objective evaluation across church history, that the greatest threats of the church have not always been external. Many of them have been internal. It's what happens within the walls of the church. So some of this is relational strife. We'll see this later in the book of Philippians. Again, Paul loves these people. They've continued to support him and uh, to pray for him while it is that he's been in prison. And yet Paul still has to address relational friction within the body. There were uh, two women who at one point in time were fully engaged in the mission, but there's been some sort of division within the body. And so Paul writes to rebuke this and to address this. So uh, within the church body, there could be gossip, there could be slander. You know, we hold grudges against people, we withhold forgiveness, we hold selfish ambition in our hearts. There's an unfortunate history that, that we're all probably aware of throughout the church. It's been full of, 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 of affairs and of abuse and of scandal. And so there are a number of black eyes relationally on the body of Christ that have threatened historically the unity of the church. But the greatest threat to the unity of the church internally across the history of the church has not always been relational strife, it's doctrinal strife. It's when the church is divided by false teaching. For 2,000 years, false teaching has been and continues to be the greatest threat to the unity of the church. And we're seeing it happen again in our day today. It's, it's like clockwork. If you study church history, it's about every 50 years. What you see uh, is the emergence of, of liberal ideologies that seek ultimately to undermine the authority of Scripture. It's to try to make God's Word suddenly sound like it is completely unclear and that we have suddenly discovered all of these new things that 2,000 years worth of uh, church history followers of Christ have just somehow missed along the way. We suffer from what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's, it's the belief that uh, if the early Christians had known what we knew, then they would have behaved differently than they did then. 
But, but this isn't the truth. You, you, see these, you see these things just recycle about every 50 years. And the reason they recycle is that, number one, they don't sustain because it's not true gospel. And secondly, because we're just a forgetful people. We forget that there's nothing new under the sun. So when you dig into uh, progressive ideologies as they're prevalent today, what you find is that they're really just rehashing the old liberalism over the last 150, 200 years. Nothing new under the sun. So uh, if, if I could just give you, commend to you this week, a podcast that would be well worth about 45 minutes of your time. Uh, this is something that was put out by the Gospel Coalition this week. It was Alyssa Childers and Colin Hansen. Uh, incredible work they did together this week. And the title of the podcast was, Why Progressive Christianity Can't Bring Reformation. And what they do during this podcast is uh, they talk about one of the greatest modern challenges. It's quote-unquote progressive Christianity. I say quote-unquote because it's not progress when you're moving the wrong way. But they, they address this, and, and what progressive Christianity essentially does is it takes many of the black and white truth claims of Scripture, and what it does is try to make them sound as gray as they possibly can. And, and instead of seeking clarity from out of that gray, it just stays there. It, it seeks out as much gray as it possibly can, and then it just lives in that space. And so uh, what they talk about is uh, how we as followers of Jesus can do the important work of the church, which is to engage those who have doubts, to engage those who have questions, but then to love them enough to point them to the truth. It's not loving whenever we know that God has spoken with certainty and clarity in his word and then allow people to live in the gray space of their doubts. Listen, is it possible and is it okay that there's going to be seasons where, and, and times that we as followers of Jesus, we have questions, we have concerns, we have doubts? Absolutely. We see this among the disciples of Jesus, but do you ever see Jesus glorifying their doubts? Do you ever see him encouraging to stay within their doubt? Jesus did not come and say, I am the way and the uncertainty and the life. He says, I'm the way and the truth. God so desired for us to know truth that he visited us. He revealed it in its fullest sense in the flesh through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's been preserved within his word. And so what we've got to be able to do and what you would hear in this podcast listening this week, it's getting uh, beneath the, set, the surface of deceptive ideologies that's being driven forward today uh, by voices like Richard Rohr and William Paul Young and Rachel Hollis and Jen Hatmaker and Glennon Doyle. And it shows, it exposes that what oftentimes presents itself as true, faithful, biblical Christianity, when you dig beneath the surface, it will destroy it from the inside out. Because it encourages people to live in this gray area. And listen, are there gray areas to our faith? Yes, there are. There's areas where we need to be able to have open, honest discussion. But church, there are places where God's word is abundantly clear. And it has been the tactic of the enemy from day one to take what God has plainly spoken in his word and make it sound like it's vague. What's the lie that he comes to Adam and Eve with in the garden? Did God really say that? He tries to take a clear command and make it sound uncertain. When if you go back, you read a few verses later, you're like, actually, that's exactly what God said. He tries to make it sound confusing. And listen, he's doing the exact same work today to try to take what God has plainly revealed in his word and to somehow make it clear in church right now more than ever, we need to lock arm in arm together in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to continue progressing forward, advancing the message of the gospel and halting the attacks of the enemy. And we do this fearlessly. This is what Paul says in verse 28. He goes on to say, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. So Paul says that the opposition that we'll face as followers of Jesus as we work to advance the true gospel, it has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is to mark out in condemnation those who were enemies of God. 
through their opposition to the true gospel, what they are doing is they are identifying those who are one day ultimately going to fall under God's just judgment and wrath for sin. But those of us who face opposition as we advance the message of the gospel, what we're doing is revealing and becoming more confident in our identity as God's children. It reveals to us that we belong to him, but here is what's unique about our fight. Here's what's different for us that's very, very different from a rugby scrum. When you and I engage in this opposition, the outcome is not uncertain. Because we as followers of Jesus, we live and we rest in the confidence that this battle has already been won and the victory has been made through Jesus Christ. We get to stand in the promise of this truth. So we lock arms together, shoulder to shoulder, we dig in our heels, we advance the gospel, we drive back the enemy because we have full assurance and confidence that the God of peace, Romans 16, will soon crush Satan under our feet. This is the warfare that we engage, and we stand firm in the face of the opposition that we face. Paul goes on to say, verses 29 and 30, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So a gospel-worthy life will stand firm in the face of opposition, and second, it suffers faithfully in the face of persecution. At multiple points over the last few weeks, I've noted that one of the great challenges troubling the 21st century church is that we are seriously lacking in a healthy theology and understanding of suffering. Here in the West in particular, we tend uh, to view any sort of suffering or trouble as a sign that we've somehow done something wrong. And and as a result of this, we're under God's judgment. And I I do think we need to clarify that, yes, sometimes we do suffer uh, because it's the natural outcome of our own foolish decisions. Like like sometimes we're we're not facing persecution. Sometimes we've just done something dumb. And and we're just facing the natural outcome and the logical uh, consequences that follow a, a bad decision that we've made. But when we face spiritual warfare and attacks of the enemy, very often these things are happening because we're walking in obedience to Christ. I mean, look, think about this for a second. Is, is Satan going to attack those who aren't taking ground for the kingdom? No. It's, it's when we, we start to feel and experience those arrows and we start to experience the opposition. That's how we know that we're gaining ground in the kingdom. And so when Paul says in verse 29, it has been granted for you to suffer. Been granted. This word granted comes from the same uh, Greek root charis, which means grace. Paul actually calls our suffering the grace of God in our lives. And the reason suffering is grace because it comes with the promise of future glory. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.16. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the condition. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He says, blessed, the word translates happy, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reason why the taste of glory is so sweet is because it's been preceded by the bitterness of suffering. We know what it means to suffer in church. When that day comes and we finally see Jesus face to face, we will have no other choice except to bring him glory and to experience joy because we know the pain that we've walked through to get to this place. It's through many dangers and toils and snares that grace will lead us home. 
You know, I think at its base foundation, this is part of why atheism is so hopeless. Because it offers absolutely no solution to the problem of suffering. It offers absolutely no solution to the problem of pain. It's no purpose, no meaning. The world is just a cold, cruel, dark place. And you can't make the case that this trouble exists because of religion. Because if you study history, you often find that some of the the most sinister, uh, inhumane things that have been committed against humanity have been done with godless ideology driving it forward. If you don't believe me, just, just listen to the testimonies of Christians we'll do here in just a moment who grew up within the Iron Curtain and those who, who try to, uh, to quench the light of the gospel. But you, you can't make this case that, that, that there's, there's good that's going to come of this unless we have hope of the glory that is to come in the life and, and after what we experience here. Because uh, if we in this life, as we walk through pain, as we walk through suffering, as followers of Jesus, we don't always have an immediate answer for that pain and for that suffering. But what we do know is that ultimately we will find meaning. It's not for nothing that we have pain. It's not for nothing that we experience. It's what we find in Romans 8, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Even the very worst things that we experience in this life, we live with the hope that one day in eternity, we will see that God used these things for our ultimate good and for his glory. So we stand firm as one in the body of Christ. We suffer together as one as the body of Christ as we hope for our glory that is to come. So quickly here, again, uh, Paul shows uh, three desires for us to be united. He shows that he desires for us to be united in belief. He says that God has granted us the grace to believe and to have faith. So again, we we just need to reemphasize this whatsoever. Salvation is completely a work of the Lord. Even the faith that was required to call on Jesus Christ for salvation is a gift of grace from God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that we could see and believe the truth of the gospel. He desires that we be united in suffering. He says that God has also granted that we should suffer for the sake of Christ. And as we suffer, this is something that we do together, united as one company, as we advance the message of the gospel. And then he shows it's his desire that we would be united in conflict. Just like Paul, he says this at the end of of verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Like the apostle Paul, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. And like every war, there's going to be casualties and there's going to be prisoners of war. One of the most uh, timeless classics in uh, Christian literature is the book Tortured for Christ by uh, Richard Wormbrand. I'm just curious, show of hands this morning, how many of you are familiar with this book? Have you read it before? Um, if you've not read it before, I, I think you, typically you can go to their website and somehow find a way to get a, a free copy. It's a, a Christian classic. I'd encourage you to, to check this out. But Wormbrand spent 14 years suffering in a communist prison where systematic attempts were made to destroy him physically and spiritually. And again, if you're not a reader, uh, Amazon Prime actually has this available right now. You can go watch this. It was filmed. It's a cinematic retelling of what it is Wormbrand went through. It's about an hour and 15 minutes long. That was filmed in the same place where he actually experienced these things. And so for 14 years... For 14 years, he he suffered at the hands of the communist regime that did everything they could to destroy him physically and spiritually. And church, you know, over the last few weeks, I think every week of this series so far, and probably in most weeks to come, I've shared stories like this because I want you to know that invincible joy is not a theory. we, We have countless testimonies of faithful followers of Jesus across the centuries who have given everything who've lost everything, but they never lost their joy. Like Christ, it was for joy that they suffered, the joy of knowing the glory that was to come. So so listen to these words from from Wormbrand, what he resolved to do in the midst of this suffering. He said, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. 
A number of us decided to pay the price, listen to this, for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms, the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. What incredible confidence. For the privilege of knowing Christ and of making him known. He he goes on to say this later in the book. He said, persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian. Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such as are rarely seen in free lands. These people cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. It's been universally true for 20 centuries of church history. The more opposition the church faces, the stronger she becomes. It's been universally true across the ages. We we hold on to a message, church, we have to understand today that many consider outdated, many consider it irrelevant. Some are going uh, to call it even dangerous to the progress of humanity. You know, I can't help but do this. I, I always giggle a little bit whenever I hear someone say that the church is on the wrong side of history. I just wonder, have you read history? The church has been on the wrong side of history for 20 centuries. And yet, 20 centuries later, Rome is gone and the church still stands. For 20 centuries, that the church has endured every single effort to destroy it. It has endured and it has outrun fascism and communism and socialism. Every humanistic ideology that has sought to stamp it out, the church has not only not disappeared, it has continued to thrive. Look at what's happening in China today. Look at what's happening in Iran today. They're facing the fiercest opposition to the gospel globally of almost any followers of Christ, and the church is exploding. And so church, I just have to ask us this morning, you know, this is, as I've read these words the last couple of weeks, the Lord has just so wrecked my heart again, where I've had to evaluate my life and ask, what am I doing with the freedom that I've been given? You and I, by every objective measure, we are the wealthiest followers of Jesus who have ever lived. We have an absolute embarrassment of riches when it comes to understanding the word of God, to studying it, to hiding it in our hearts. And we choose so many lesser things. What are we doing with the freedom that we've been given us? Are we using the freedom as an excuse to live in sin and to live in indifference and to live in, in, in apathy? Are we letting this freedom, are we getting lazy and allowing worldly ideologies to creep into the church? Destroying the hope of the gospel from the inside out. We're using our freedom to to fixate on the superficial concerns and preferences we have within the church. Are we using our freedom to walk in bold unity as we advance the message of the gospel and we stop the work of the enemy? How are we using this freedom? Because what we see is that by the grace of God, you and I have been empowered to walk in holiness. Not in compromise, but in holiness. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how difficult things get, you and I are never given freedom to walk in sin. We walk in holy unity together as the body of Christ. We hold fast and we hold firm to the true gospel of Christ. And we continue to drive it forward. And we stamp out the schemes of the devil and of the enemy. And you and I do this. We press on with a confident joy, come what may. Because you and I know that the outcome here is not uncertain. The outcome is not uncertain. You and I, regardless of what we experience, regardless of what opposition we come against, regardless of what persecution we may one day face. Church, the moral of the story is that Jesus wins. We know where all of this is going, and we continue to press forward in boldness and confidence, knowing that even in our suffering, we can ultimately bring God glory, and in bringing him glory, we're going to find our greatest joy. So, Father, we praise you for the truth of that promise this morning, that you are working all things together for our good and for your glory.
Lord, we recognize today that if we're going to faithfully follow your son, Jesus, we're going to face opposition. So, Father, I I ask this morning, Lord, that you would encourage our spirits. You would empower us. You would pick us up. You would help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes on the eternity to come, Lord, that we would lay down our pride and we would lay down our fear. Father, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to engage fully in the mission you've called us to fulfill. So, Lord, regardless of what opposition we may face, regardless of what persecution may one day come, would the testimony of your church, of your people be that we were standing firm and we were striving forward together. So as we close this morning, I'm just going to invite you to to keep your heads bowed with me for a moment just of, of just reflection. Okay, maybe you're here today as a, as a follower of Jesus, and, and if you're just being honest, you, you know that the, the religious freedom we've enjoyed as a nation, it's just, it just led you maybe to a place of indifference, of apathy. Instead of using our freedom to know Christ and to make him known, we're, we're pursuing after the emptiness of this world. And so maybe what you need to pray this morning is that the Lord would, would reveal that sin to you, that you would lay it at his feet, that you would ask for his help to have a desire to know his word a desire to make Christ known this isn't something you can just manufacture on your own this is completely and totally a work of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit and so what we have to do is become a people who are wholly dependent upon the Lord in prayer lay before the Lord the desires of our heart that we would desire to know him above all else and to make him known above all else regardless of the cost. And again, maybe you're here this morning, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus or you're just kind of trying to figure this out and and listen to what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. And what I hope you would see today is that Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. That today you can, you can turn from your sin from the emptiness of your sin that you can turn to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ call on him in faith and you can be saved. You can be free from the power of sin in your life. You can be free from the penalty of sin, which is death. Both spiritual death and the here and now and eternal death and the life to come. You can walk freely and boldly and confidently as a son or a daughter of your heavenly father. If that's you today, our invitation is you would call on Jesus Christ and be saved. Use those next steps cards that we've given you uh, to communicate with us. Let us come alongside you, pray for you, and encourage you. If that's you today, don't delay. Call on Jesus and be saved. So, Father, regardless of where we land this morning, we seek and we desire as a people that above all else, we would want to bring you glory. We thank you that in spite of the challenges that we face, even as a church family this year, Lord, you have not abandoned us. You've not forgotten us. You've not neglected us. You are using even the most difficult of circumstances for our good and for your glory. So help us now as we sing to bring you glory so that we can know the truest joy. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.